Hi, this is Glenn Lowry at The Glenn Show, formerly at bloggingheads.tv, now at substack.com, and at our YouTube channel, Glenn Lowry Show. This week is a walk down memory, memory lane for me, actually. Uh, I came across, while doing some research, an old conversation I had with Daniel Kaufman. Daniel is a philosopher. He's a philosopher who studies methodology and philosophy of the social sciences. And he and I, in 2015, a long time ago, I grant you, had a wonderful conversation around the question, basically, is economics a science? Now, as an economist, I like to think that we are scientific, but economics is not physics. And I'm fully aware of that. Daniel and I explore the intricacies of where the scientific and social scientific projects uh, intersect. It's a good conversation. I learned a lot from it and was reminded of that uh, when I reviewed this recently and decided that I would share the benefit of this conversation with you. Daniel is a longtime contributor to the Blogging Heads podcast platform that Robert Wright has led for more than a decade. And that's where I got my start. All the more reason to share with you the benefits of my conversation with Daniel. So I hope you enjoy it. Well, Glenn Lowry, it is really a pleasure to have you on uh, the Sophia program on Blogging Heads. Um, and um, you don't really need much of an introduction, um, although you're not in your normal place. So maybe say, you know, two seconds, something about yourself and where you are right now. Yeah, I'm Glenn Lowry. I host the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv. So people who come to the site often may have seen my face before. Um, I'm a professor at Brown University, uh, professor of economics and the social sciences there. But uh, this year, I'm on sabbatical leave in uh, Stanford, California, at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, which is a semi-autonomous institution uh, located uh, on Stanford's campus that uh, houses scholars like myself who are away from their normal positions for a year to undertake their writing projects and uh, so on. I'm in this idyllic setting. It's very beautiful, and uh, it's almost like paradise, and one wonders how one stays focused on getting one's work done when you're in such a place. I mean, you know, there's a beautiful swimming pool in the back of my apartment that I can swim in uh, pretty much every day. And uh, there's, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables everywhere. The wine, I'm told, is not half bad. Uh, <laughs> and there are hiking trails and everybody's on a bicycle. Uh, you know, everybody is half my age, including the people who are 10 years older than me. <laughs> So are you actually working on a scholarly monograph right now? What's your, what's your project? Okay, so I had to make uh, each of us, there are about 36 fellows here for the year. This is a huge operation. And uh, each of us was given 10 minutes to explain to our colleagues what we're doing. That took uh, three days, uh, mornings, you know, 36 people, 10 minutes apiece. Um, so this, that's part of our... Um, part of our uh, orientation process here, hearing from each other. So I gave my spiel yesterday, and it began with an apology, because there are all these serious anthropologists, psychologists, political scientists, historians, philosophers, etc., running around here, and uh, 
they, they all have these cutting edge frontier, you know, quantitative, you know, amazing data sets, uh, incredible questions, projects that they're pushing forward. And I'm here to write a memoir, a memoir, Daniel. <laughs> how subjective, how soft and squishy and literary and how far from the data can one get than contemplating one's navel, as it were, in writing a memoir. So I had to apologize to these people. I said, you know, I'm, I, I tried to tell them I'm a serious social scientist. I, I really, <laughs> I'm a fellow of the Econometric Society. I published in the journals. I'm a, I really am a real economist, but I'm here to write a memoir. So... Uh, you know, I don't want to say too much about it because, you know, yeah, uh, I got you come out one of these days and I want I want it to be fresh. But I'm reflecting on my life and uh, trying to critically assess, you know, in terms of religion, politics, uh, uh, my relationship to the social sciences, about which we'll be talking, I guess, here to, to a certain degree uh, today um, and uh, various challenges I face personally in my life and so on, and what it's all come to after four decades in the academy. That sounds very interesting. Um, Hope so. And um, in terms of apologizing to a bunch of people all engaging, <laughs> as you called it, cutting-edge quantitative analysis, yeah. maybe one of the things we're going to get into is um, – this turn to such an overwhelmingly quantitative uh, approach to the social sciences, which did not used to be the case. Um, I, of course, uh, my name is Daniel Coffin. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. Um, I'm a fan of, of Glenn's. You know, I've been reading you uh, since the 80s and oh, okay. um, watching your program on blogging heads. And, um, you know, when I had the idea, when Massimo Piliucci and I had the idea to create this philosophy program, I knew that at some point down the road I wanted to talk to you um, because I am one of the areas I'm really interested in is in the philosophy of social science, um, uh, which is sort of a sub-branch of the philosophy of science and what it's really getting at is sort of the methods, uh, the methods and the sort of the meta theory behind, uh, behind the social sciences. Um, and you seemed like the person who I'd want to talk to about that. So um, is that okay if we talk about that today? I'll do my best. <laughs> All right. So, so, um, my interest in the social sciences is, is from the standpoint of what sort of a, accounts we get about human, uh, human behavior, uh, from these sciences. And I, I, I use the word accounts because I'm, I'm not yet ready to use the word explanations. Um, and one of the things I want to ask you is sort of, uh, how you conceive of the social sciences in relation to the physical sciences in terms of the kinds of accounts that they give. Um, from your perspective. And so maybe I, we could start with you just talking a little bit about how you understand the social sciences and what it is they do. What kind of accounts do the social sciences give us uh, of our behavior as opposed to, let's say, uh, the biological sciences? Big question. And uh, it's not one that um, we are, uh, we economists are encouraged much to think about. I, I can remember being in graduate school, admittedly, it was some decades ago, but one of my teachers was Paul Samuelson, the great uh, economist, uh, and he, he, he had this quip, those who can do, those who can't do methodology. <laughs> in other words, you know, the serious scholars here are too busy proving theorems or finding out, you know, something that was unknown before or formalizing a model of some phenomenon that had uh, resisted formalization to be bothered, you know, with this uh, nasal gazing activity of thinking about how they're thinking about you know, whatever their subject is. So you will not find, I'm sure you know this, in graduate training uh, in economics, 
any courses where the students are encouraged to think about methodology, except in the narrow sense of thinking about statistical methods, you know, and how you would infer from data or thinking about, you know, mathematical analytical methods and how you would study a dynamical system or use calculus to do this or that. Okay, so that was a, uh, a, a little bit of a disclaimer, which is that we don't do a whole lot of deep philosophical reflection about what we do as a normal practice in economics. But you've asked me, how do I understand the accounts or the explanations that social sciences give and how might I distinguish them from the physical sciences? Um, of course, the social sciences are themselves different one from another, it seems to me. Anthropology is not sociology, is not economics, is not political science, is not psychology, and so on. So I wouldn't want to paint with too broad a brush here. I'm an economist. Um, one aspect of how I think what we social scientists do that differs from what natural scientists do is that um, the very act and process of us doing what we do is part of the phenomenon that we're trying to account for. I don't want to get too esoteric here, but I think you're nodding, so I think you at least, I don't know if the other listeners here are, are getting what I'm getting at, but an economist, for example, um, who puts forward, say, Keynes, a theory about full employment and uh, the role that the government might play in promoting it um, is at one and the same time making a claim about how, uh, you know, how the world works, you know, what's the relationship between savings, investment, economic growth, uh, employment, uh, and so forth and so on, which you could take to be a purely scientific question, a cause and effect question. If the federal government runs a deficit of this magnitude, what do we forecast the consequences for inflation to be? Something like that. And yet also at the same time is constructing like a conceptual framework, a language, a, a way of thinking about the world that, that is an artifact in and of itself. It's a, it's a consequential framing move that one makes in thinking about the world in a particular way, which is itself a social datum, you know? So uh, Marxism is a either poor or, or decent account of, you know, how capitalism actually plays itself out. Uh, we modern economists, most of us think it's not an especially insightful account of those dynamic processes, although, of course, there'd be argument about that. But there can be no doubt that Marxism is as well an interpretive framework. It, it brings to the data a, a set of, you know, naming, labeling, conceptualizing, categorizing uh, uh, moves that are uh, in and of themselves consequential. I mean, if it, the question, is labor a commodity, it's not really a scientific question, is it? I, I ask, okay? And yet, it's a very powerful and profound question, is labor a commodity or not, for thinking about the relationship between the owners of machines on the one hand and the people who have to supply their uh, time to the labor market in order to survive on the other. If it's not a commodity, what one calls exploitation within Marxist theory, and I'm not a Marxist, I'm just giving this as an example, um, looks like a much more compelling way normatively of thinking about it. Anyway, I'm rambling a little bit. What I mean to say is I think the social sciences differ, at least I want to say economics differs, but I think this is also true about sociology, and I think it may, though I'm not a psychologist, be true at least to some degree about psychology, differ from the natural sciences in that there's a divorce between the investigator and the natural world 
that one takes for granted and that's quite compelling in the physical sciences. But there's a sense in which the social scientist is also an actor mm. in the world which he or she would account for. And their productions, their intellectual productions are artifacts in that world that by changing the beliefs that people have or that by providing rationalizations and legitimations for the practices that are being observed are themselves a part of what needs to be accounted for. I think that the, the last, this last part, the way you put it was, was quite clear. So I guess, and this is not something I want to pursue sort of majorly, but I guess one of the issues then is the social scientist probably has to be more concerned with the biases he brings to the experiment than the chemist does, right? I mean, I guess that everybody brings biases to it, but the kinds of things that the, that the, um, that the social scientist is, uh, investigating are things about which most people have substantial sort of opinions or positions before they engage in the inquiry. And I guess maybe that's slightly less so or less, at least there's less investment maybe in, in, in that view than there is in the physical sciences. Uh, do you, is, is there a greater effort, do you think, on the part of social sciences to, to be careful that they don't bring bi their own biases to the, uh, to the table when they're engaged in the inquiry? I think there should be, and I, I think there is uh, some evidence that um, I'm thinking about Pierre Bourdieu and, and the concept of reflexivity, yep. you know, yeah. this idea of being aware that I'm an actor in the world as well as a observer of the world and an explainer, quote unquote, of the world. Yeah. And then I, and I, I'm not a I'm not a deep student of Bourdieu or of this particular brand of sort of social theory. It's just part of my education coming along has been to try to acquaint myself a little bit with what theoretical anthropologists and sociologists are saying about what they do. And, and it strikes me that this emphasis on reflexivity is one um, uh, example of a social scientific awareness of, you calling them biases, yes, some of them will be biases or some of them just might be, you know, um, so what questions am I asking and what questions am I not asking? Yeah, I meant it descriptively, biases. I didn't necessarily mean it in a pejorative yeah. way. Um, right. um, you know, I think it's interesting at one point you – you went from talking about explanation of behavior to talking about interpretation of it. And that's something that I want to get back to um, in a little bit. Um, because part of what I wonder is whether really what we're doing when we engage in social scientific investigation is more interpretive than it is explanatory in the causal sense. Um, but but I, I want to get to that once we've gone a little farther. Um, okay. In terms of the relationship that you – you know, one might say – Economics is the study of human behavior in the marketplace. Let's just say that as a name okay. as a name for it. Um, psychology is the study of human behavior more generally. Sociology is the study of human behavior at a sort of group level of description. So I guess my provocative question is: Why isn't economics simply a branch of psychology? And less provocatively, what is the relationship between economics? on the one hand, and psychology and sociology on the other, as, it, as, that, as it's practiced? Yeah, big, also a big question. Um, so why isn't economics just a, a branch of psychology since psychology studies human behavior and economic behavior is one aspect of human behavior? That's right. So markets are, uh, are things... Uh, here's, here's this economist answer, and I'm not sure it's going to pass philosophic muster. Um, true, uh, markets are venues in which human beings act. But the logic of the marketplace is not 
uh, deducible in any direct or straight line way from uh, what it is that I might know about what goes on inside the heads of, uh, of human beings. Uh, here's what I mean. That's interesting. Okay, so I can say arbitrage. Let me take a principle. Arbitrage is like I've got the same good as trading at different prices in different locations. That creates a profit opportunity for somebody to move from the cheap to the expensive location and realize a return. Because that profit opportunity exists and we can presume that people are going to uh, uh, avail themselves of it, we don't think, at least in a sustained way, that different prices for the same good, uh, taking uh, transportation cost into account, frictions of that sort, can persist over a long period of time. So we predict that prices will move into a relationship between one another based upon this idea of arbitrage. It seems to me that the act of going from a low price to a high price is the human behavior in that. I can buy cheap and sell dear. I can make money. That's not very deep psychology. I don't really need to know a whole lot about the human mind to know that that possibility will attract uh, profit-making uh, activity. And indeed, it might be true of a vast a number of human beings that for whatever psychological reasons, they would not avail themselves of an opportunity to make profit. But all I need would be for a few of such human beings to be in the business of making money in a serious way to be able to predict that the price of bread in Los Angeles and the price of bread in San Francisco is not going to differ by more than how much it costs to move a loaf of bread from Los Angeles to San Francisco, which is an economic, it seems to me, and not a psychological prediction, if that's at all. No, that's very interesting. So it's part of the idea that, look, um, psychology teaches us sort of about the causes of human behavior at a level of abstraction because it's supposed to sort of cover all of it. But when you start talking about human behavior in very specific contexts, that those general understandings that we get from the psychological sciences aren't as useful. In other words, I use, in a sense, I'm just saying that when people enter into the markets, there's a very distinctive sort of psychology that they bring to bear and that, that gets brought to bear in their behavior that maybe wouldn't be true of their behavior when they're not engaging in the markets. Not quite. I don't think that's quite what I'm saying, although it may be true what you just said. I don't, I'm not disputing it. I think what I'm saying is that if I'm interested in predicting what's going to happen in the marketplace, the, the depth of my psychological understanding of individuals' cognitive processes need not be very great in order for me to get quite strong predictions about what's going to happen. And as the economist, that's what I'm interested in. Right. You know, say a securities market where there's rumors running around, where there's risk taking, where there's all kinds of biases in people's psychological perceptions, where, you know, there's power, there's uh, status. They, they, you know, uh, I, Wall Street is a very particular sociological, cultural, psychological nexus. I've never worked there. I don't know. But something tells me that it's got its own, uh, you know, dynamic going on there. Uh, still, uh, despite all of that. I might be able to say something uh, quite precise about how a certain derivative securities uh, uh, value is going to change. You know, I've got an option to, to buy a stock at a certain price before the expiration date of the option. Uh, the price of that stock is moving around. The expiration date is approaching. How should my options price change as a function of the duration of time to expiration and the stochastic movements of the underlying securities price? Well, that's an answerable question. I mean, uh, people like Robert Merton and others, uh, this is the economist, not the sociologist, Robert Merton, the one with the Nobel Prize, Robert Merton Jr., 
uh, have developed a very beautiful theory of the relationship between the price of a derivative security and the price of the underlying uh, security on which the derivative is written. Now, that theory is, to me, economics, in this case, financial sure. economics, predicting the performance of a market from a relatively few principles. To the extent that those principles involve in this, an attribution of some psychological orientation to, to traders, they want to make money, and to the extent that that attribution is systematically false, the theory would lead one astray. So one ultimately wants to check it back against the data. But I, I see a real difference between the kind of theorizing about security prices, in my example, on the one hand, and what it is that, I don't know, a Daniel uh, Kahneman or somebody might learn in a laboratory. This is the psychologist, economist, economist at Princeton, who's a very distinguished author of Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, uh, and other works. Uh, what, what uh, he or someone like that might say about, you know, the, the kind of psychological biases that can be observed in the laboratory of whatever. Anyway, I talk too much. How, how, no, you're supposed to be talking. I'm, I'm interviewing. I'm asking you questions. So we want to hear the answers. Right, um, yeah. And I don't like to interrupt people while they're talking. Um, um, how reliable are these predictions? With, with, for example, the, the, the theory that you just gave, how reliable are the predictions that are made um, using that theory as sort of your, your governing your governing uh, framework? Um, this is, I'm not a financial economics expert, so I can't cite chapter and verse. Roughly. Rough, I mean, highly reliable, in my humble opinion, despite the fact that there are a lot of naysayers out there. Highly reliable. Okay, no, nobody can predict when a bubble is going to burst. Okay, or, you know, uh, a crash or uh, something like that. The market goes up and down. Nobody's, a, you know, nobody has the capacity to predict how that's going to work out. So a person might uh, denigrate the theory by saying, yeah, these economists are so clever. How come they couldn't have predicted the crash of 2008 or whatever, whatever? Well, you know, the glib economist answer is if I could predict it, I would have made a fortune, yeah. uh, you know, based on the prediction. And, yeah. it, you know, things would have been different if I had had the capacity to predict I mean, it's kind of like an axiom that you can't predict because if you predict, you act, given that you're seeking profit and your action then becomes a part of what it is that we're trying to explain. Um, but I, I think on the whole that, that um, you know, the uh, specialized applications of economic logic to the study of, you know, firms competing against each other in newly uh, evolving technological frontiers and who's going to make the investment and uh, so on. Uh, preemption, you know, if I can get out in front and lock up the market, I can, you know, uh, undercut my competition and create a circumstance in which they wouldn't um, want to make the investment to enter because they know that I'm big enough to be able to come after them and undercut and whatnot, which means that I might want to have excess capacity in front. I might want to have a loss leading pricing strategy. And I'm, I'm all over the place in terms of my examples, but I'm, I'm just trying to say, or or if I change the incentives within the healthcare uh, industry so that I make this procedure relatively less costly as compared to that procedure, what do I think the practice of uh, physicians and patients is going to be with respect to how they avail themselves of these alternative modalities of treatment? Um, and so, if I if I um, undermine property rights. Uh, in a, a circumstance in which people can't feel secure that they're going to be able to retain the returns from their investments, what's the consequence of that going to be for the long-term trajectory of economic growth in this country versus that, and so on? I think these predictions are not, they're not accurate in the sense of a, a nuclear physicist who can tell you what the half-life 
of decay of some molecule is uh, or some atom, but they but they are accurate within the framework of the social science, yeah. of the empirical yeah. social science. I, I think yeah. uh, our theory holds up pretty well. Yeah. No, the reason I ask, you know, I that's sort of you know, gotcha game that you see people play is I find very irritating. Oh, you know, how come you guys didn't predict the crash? That just seems such a, I don't know, such a silly kind of critique. Um, but I do think maybe there's a, a more serious point that lurks underneath. And that is, um, you know, depending on if you were to do sort of an across the board survey of just how reliable economic predictions are, let's say to do like a meta study of, you know, across the board of how reliable they are. Um, you know, it does beg the question, you know, do we have this rate of reliability because we've actually found real causal generalizations between, um, you know, the, these particular causes and these particular uh, behavioral effects in the marketplace? Or is it simply that we've collected so much information that we, in a sense, have very detailed histories of past economic behavior? And so we're going to make better guesses than um than we would otherwise uh in other words you know depending on what the rates of the, the successful predictions were i might wonder whether that was the case you know whether whether i'd really identified um causal uh, uh law-like generalizations um or whether i just had very very substantial detailed uh histories that um make me a good guesser right um i, I was going to say i think that that's a fair distinction, and I was going to observe the obvious, which is that we don't have controlled experimental investigation, generally speaking, in economics in a way that you might have in some other fields, including psychology, you know, the laboratory settings. Explain a little bit. Why is that? Why do we not, why are we not able to do that in economics the way we can in psychology? Well, laboratory experimentation in economics is very artificial. I mean, uh, and I don't mean that as a criticism. I just mean it as an observation. Mm. You take a group of students from the university, you put them in, a, in front of a bunch of a bank of computer screens, you have programs, some exercise that they're supposed to do, you create some um, artificial rewards that they will get if they perform well or poorly at the exercise, and then you turn them loose and you vary the conditions or the treatment and you observe the extent to which their observed behavior in the laboratory differs. Well, that's not a marketplace. Um, and And... The, the, you can't the replicate the conditions in a sufficiently accurate way, is what you're saying. Right, right. And, and I can't like blindly assign, okay, you're going to go to the world in which they have a minimum wage for fast food restaurant workers, and you're going to be in that world. But over here is a world otherwise very similar to yours, but where we don't allow the minimum wage to pass. So the difference is the treatment. The treatment is the minimum wage. Everything else through random assignment of people to these worlds has been controlled. So then if I see an outcome difference, I conclude that the outcome difference is a causally attributable to the treatment difference. Raising the minimum wage caused X, whatever the right. outcome difference X might be. Well, we don't do minimum wage that way. We don't have cities where we do and do not where the individuals are randomly assigned to these and so yes. that would be a controlled laboratory right. experiment, but it's, it involves a scale of, uh, you know, kind of, uh, uh, intervention and, and, and social control over people yeah. that is, yeah. uh, that's politically and morally unacceptable. It's also impractical, I guess, you know, I mean, I guess you could create kind of laboratory villages and stuff and, and, and in a sense, you know, not coercively, but have people, you know, volunteer to sort of go live in them for a few years and create little economies 
um, and try and sort of, you know, because, you know, the, maybe it's worth saying for the sake of the audience, I mean, the reason why you want the controlled experiments is because the controlled experiments is what gives you the relevant counterfactuals that tell you that you actually do have a real causal relationship as opposed to, you know, in other words, you know, to say that A caused B, part of what, what you're saying is had A not occurred, B would not have occurred. Yeah. But the only way to find that out is to set up experiments in which you have both the presence of it and the not the presence of it. Um, and without those sorts of controlled experiments, you can't really establish whether the relevant counterfactual is true. Right. Um, and so it's then unclear whether or not you can claim that you've actually discovered a causal relationship. Um, how important it is to be able to call something a causal relationship, you know, may be disputable, especially if, as you say, the predictions that the economists are getting are pretty accurate, um, and are productive for the various purposes to which they're put. Um, but, but in it's important for intervention, I think, right? I mean, if I'm just trying to forecast what's going to happen, it could be just that you said a moment ago that with enough data, I can get a pretty good read on trends and I can get a, you know, low variance estimate of what the thing is going to be next period. But I don't know why, you know, yeah. I'm, I don't know what the things were going on inside the black box that made it be such as it is. If I want to fiddle around with the system, if I want to change the law, I want to intervene in some kind of major way, then to, to predict the consequences of the shift, I need to understand the mechanism. And yeah. to the extent that I don't have causal accounts, I don't, I don't have confidence in my capacity to manipulate the system, that is, to do policy in a way that, uh, that would be right. effective. But, but our ability to get causal accounts in economics, it sounds like, are, is... I am a widower who remarried four years ago to a somewhat younger woman and I need life insurance. If someone relies on your financial support, whether it's a child, aging parent, or even a business partner, you need life insurance. Life insurance can give you peace of mind that if something happens to you, your loved ones would have a financial cushion to pay for things like rent, mortgage payments, loans, education costs, and everyday expenses. Having coverage through your job may not be enough. Most people need up to 10 times more to properly provide for their families. Typically, life insurance gets more expensive as you age, so it's smart to get a policy sooner rather than later. Click on the link in the description or head to policygenius.com and answer a few questions about yourself in minutes. You can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. Their licensed experts will help you understand your options and apply for a policy. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. You can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you at every step until you're covered. Since 2014, Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people shop for insurance and placed $120 billion in coverage. Head to policygenius.com to get your free insurance quotes and see how much you could save. At least severely um, problematized by the inability to perform these kinds of experiments that give you these relevant counterfactuals, right? So that you can say with some confidence, well, had this not happened, 
um, this effect wouldn't have, wouldn't have happened. Um, and, um, and so people look for uh, indirect ways of doing that, you know, so-called natural experiments. You know, they look for events in the world that are plausibly taken to be exogenous, you know, to have happened irrespective of uh, whatever else uh, you might be trying to account for in your system. And then uh, uh, compare a before and after or compare. Uh, let me give a concrete example. Um, so if I want to know, I've written about incarceration, crime and punishment in America, too many people in prison and so yes, forth. Yes. And in that literature, a big question is what's the causal effect of more severe punishment on people's participation in criminal activity? Does punishment deter crime? And in, to what extent? And uh, is it the length of the sentence? Is it the, the quickness with which the punishment is applied to the person who offends? Is it the certainty that they will be punished given that they offend? Which, what aspects of the regime cause what kinds of behaviors with people. So it would be ideal if one could have a kind of formal experiment in which you had some people who were subject to one set of punishment regimes, other people otherwise similar, randomly assigned to a different set, and you observed over some period of time what happened. But for the reasons we've already adduced, that's not practical. So what people will do will be they'll look for events like a federal court orders the state of California to release tens of thousands of people from its overcrowded prisons. So now suddenly people who would have been subject to one punishment regime are subject to a different punishment regime as a consequence of this intervention by the state of California. So long as I think that that act, which might have come through some interpretation of a Supreme Court interpretation of the Eighth Amendment or whatever, is not itself caused by whatever the mechanisms are that I think, you know, uh, interface between a, a person who's potentially engaging, engaging in criminal behavior and the punishment that they might get. As long as I think it's exogenous, I can treat that as a kind of quasi-randomization, you know, before that, after that. Other things were the same except for this one little chain. And then I can do a counting exercise to see if the amount of crime goes up or down right. uh, relative to the number of people in prison. And then I can impute that. Let me give one more example. Because I, I served on a National Academy of Sciences panel assessing the extent of racial discrimination. And there was this huge fight between the sociologist and the economist on the panel and the statisticians on the panel. I don't want to name any names, but these were all very distinguished people. The sociologists and the economists were saying, I have a survey of the population. It identifies the race of people tells me what region of the country they live in, how old they are, how much work experience they have, how much education they've attained, and so forth. And it tells me what they're being paid on their jobs. I run a multiple uh, uh, variable regression where I control for these things that I can observe. And I observe, try to see whether the wages that are paid to black people after I control for these things are different from the wages that are paid to white people. Now, when you run those regressions, you generally find that blacks are paid less, other things equal than whites. It's a question of how much less, 5%, 10%. In the old days, it would have been 20 percent, but they're paid less. The statisticians were saying, OK, yeah, but the question here was, are they paid less because of their race? Okay? What you really want to do, you can't do, which is send the same person into the employer, but have them be black one day and white the next day. Right. It's physically impossible to do. Right. And, and therefore, there's all kinds of assumptions built into your interpretation of that regression analysis as a causal uh, as, a, as a disparity caused by uh, the, the employer's discrimination. For example, you counted the years of education, 
but you didn't measure the quality of the education. Yeah. And you didn't see the home environment, which may interact with the education to produce effectively more cognitive development. Uh, you didn't observe any of that. Your racial residual imputation might be discrimination or it might be culture or it might be yeah. uh, a whole lot of other stuff. And you don't know, said the statistician. But that just illustrates the difficulty in deducing a causal conclusion yeah. from the uh, social data that's available. Yeah, yeah, that's really fast. And I guess there, the example that you're talking about of, of racial discrimination, um, you know, one of the ways they try to sort of, I know that they try to sort of create sort of um, um, uh, experiments that try to get at this without obviously the person being turned black or white from one day to the next. So they'll, for example, identify names that are, that are taken to be typically black sounding names and see if when applications go out with this name on it or with right. that name on it. And, but that also, again, requires so much interpretation of the, um, of, uh, of, 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 of what it is you're claiming is the, is the, is the cause that I, that I wonder whether, you know, as you were talk, describing the statistician's objections, I thought to myself, you know, trying to call these causal explanations is actually pretty hope, hopeless. If what you mean by causal is anything like what we mean in physical science, um, it's a pretty hopeless thing to do because you cannot disambiguate. There's no way to disambiguate all of those factors that you just described. You might disambiguate a few of them, but there are so many of them, right? And they interact right. in so many different ways. That's why the statistician wants a controlled experiment, which in this case is not possible. Which you can't have. Right? And given that you can't have it, he wants us to be more modest in the claims that we make about causality. And what do you think? Do you think economists – my impression is that social scientists, at least the impression that's given to the public in terms of the popular communication of these ideas um, are not sufficiently humble. Would you agree with that? I agree with that 100%. A new study comes out and people say study finds X or study finds Y. And I just wish often uh, they would be a little bit more modest about about the nature of those claims. I mean, presumably there is an inductive aspect to this, right, that it, it's the cumulative weight of a large number of uh, investigations, any one of which is imperfect for reasons that we've been talking about. But the net effect of a large number of them trying different methods with different uh, populations and so forth, all pointing more or less in the same direction, should, I think, carry right. some, you know, should carry some weight. Right. So let me ask you, I mean, this is a natural place for me to sort of segue to another uh, part of this that you partly brought up. I mean, so the question, of, a question like whether race affects things like employment or in, in the case of, uh, uh, of your, your work, incarceration, um, Whatever theory, whatever account you come up with is going to be one that explains this phenomenon in this context, right? Presumably, it's not going to apply internationally. It's not good because the way that race may be perceived in other countries may be completely different. It may not be, you know, blacks that are discriminated against. It may be somebody else who's the primary sort of boogeyman in that culture. So I take it that in this case, the explanations that you're giving are, are, are relatively local, right? I mean, they're meant to sort of explain a certain set of phenomenon within the context of the United States. Um, but it seems to me like the economic explanations that are given uh, when we do it, when you when you're engaged in your economic work, 
are intended to apply across the board. In other words, the way people behave in markets, the accounts that you give is supposed to explain how they behave in markets in the United States or how they behave in markets in Japan or how they behave in markets in China. Is that actually true? Do, do, are these accounts intended to be global in that way when we do economics as opposed to talking, let's say, about racism and incarceration? Um, well, I want to say yes and no. I mean, mainly yes. I want to say mainly the um, understandings that one gets about the behavior of firms, consumers, investors, workers in response to incentives and about, you know, the formation of prices and uh, uh, all of that, uh, the determinants of economic growth, they're meant to be universal. And, and people, in, in fact, uh, this is something, let me, let me just finish the thought. They're meant to be universal, although I think uh, in compelling, you know, be careful about the generalizations to universality. Uh, so, I mean, I want to give a concrete example. Um, people studying education reform in different countries around the world, vouchers, mm -hmm. uh, choice, uh, parental choice and assigning their kids to schools. So uh, various countries around the world are doing, uh, you know, policy shifts in which they are changing the way in which they organize their educational systems. And one might want to know, does competition between schools for the tuition that students might be able to bring if they had portable vouchers to bring their tuition to one school or another, create a circumstance in which the effective delivery of educational services by the schools is enhanced because the providers are now in a more market-like environment. They don't have local monopoly power over their, uh, their charges. Uh, they could go out of business if they don't do an effective job. Does it work better? And I'm just giving this one example. I'm talking about schools, parents, students, teachers, administrators, um, <coughs> and so on. And you might think, I don't know much about Chile, uh, the country in South America, but it's one place where people have been doing these kinds of investigations. Um, I know very little about Taiwan, uh, uh, you know, and so on. Uh, and I, I know a little bit of something about the South Bronx and the South side of Chicago and whatnot, because I'm an American. I've lived in these places. Um, the culture amongst teachers, the uh, attitudes that parents have toward their children's education, the trust that people have in bureaucratic systems, uh, their willingness to subject themselves to fierce uh, sort of uh, musical chair competition. Everybody's got to get it you know, so high on the exam or else they don't go to this university and their willingness to put up with that, their belief in meritocracy. Um, these are all, and I'm just making this up off the top of my head. If I sat systematically, I could think of many more, I imagine, uh, differences across these uh, local settings that might factor into uh, how it is that people respond to uh, changes in incentives for schools. It's not uh, a, you know, the economy is embedded, in this case, economy means the economy of educational provision, in a cultural right. and social uh, milieu, yes. which is, uh, which is uh, r relevant to yeah. trying to understand uh, the outcome of the... So I think it depends. I mean, I, you know, I, I would say financial markets, I'd be much more inclined, inclined to attribute. think of that as a universal thing. You know, the uh, entrepreneurs, hedge funds, whatever, they, you know, the bets that they make, how those things work out. To the extent that I can understand them at all, I would reckon my understandings would be relative. I mean, besides money moves very quickly and everybody's got a computer screen so you can trade from London in the uh, Tokyo market or the Hong Kong market, whatever. So it, that, the localness might not be at all applicable there. 
Um, but uh, so, to what extent? So, let me ask you. I mean, this is really very interesting, and, and along the lines um, of your of the earlier example with education, educational economics, so to speak, um, versus you know, let's say financial markets. Um, to what extent, when economists try to come up with explanations um, um, and accounts that will allow us to sort of uh, either make policy, predict that we can make policy or change policy or whatever. To what extent do they, when engaged in, in their investigations, um, try to get as much of an, a global sample as possible? In other words, um, you know, and even the case of financial markets, um, how, how, how broad is the sample uh, uh, on which they, they base their, the, the, the explanations that they give? Okay, you know, you take your data where you find them. So sometimes it's very opportunistic. I have information. Let's say uh, I'm interested in the intergenerational transmission of economic status. You know, your parents did this well, you do that well. Let's say I'm trying to separate out the effects of money. The parents had more resources, so you, you, know, you got better vacations, better education, more enriched home environment, and genetics. The parents did well, perhaps because they were endowed with certain abilities that were transmitted through biological processes to their children or were not, uh, and so on. And I'm trying to say, so now, you know, twin studies, okay? I'm just giving an example of opportunistic seizing on data. So um, I'm not an expert in this field, but I've seen a number of papers presented. So apparently the Norwegians or the Finns have conducted a very extensive, you know, uh, uh, exploration of the intergenerational uh, uh, transmission of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, in intellectual abilities between parents and children. I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't talk about what I don't know about. I don't really know this literature very well except to know that it exists. But there's a data set. I've got 2,500. I've got the twins. I followed them for 15 years longitudinal after they've been, you know, right. a lot of papers are going to be written on those data because right. those are the data that you have. I mean, you're going to yeah. have to go with the data. So, so to one extent, so, in one sense, there may not be as much effort to make, I know, universal across national, the empirical information on which scientific inferences are based because they either they're not comparable or they're not available to the same degree uh, across all these countries. At the other end of the spectrum, though, I want to observe that there is now a large literature in, in macroeconomics, the economics of, of growth and uh, uh, development, of people using data sets that are based on, you know, 114 countries that are sampled with respect to various measures of their geographic endowment, of their populations, gen, uh, ethnic diversity, and linguistic diversity of their whatever. And then they try to say, well, country X is growing at this rate and country Y at that rate because we can impute the differences to differences in the endowment in country X and country Y of these various factors. And I always think, you know, do I really, I mean, when I, when I hear some of these papers based on these uh, cross-national data sets, I'm pushing back in the other direction now, you see, uh, about you, you think you're getting general, generalization by getting many countries in, but you're also assuming that there's a common mechanism underlying what you're observing in all these countries of which each country is an example. Right. And I keep thinking countries are really arbitrary. I mean, where right. the borders got drawn is yeah. arbitrary. There's so much history and politics built into what made a country, what didn't make a country, and so on. Right. And, and they differ 
in, in so many institutional, cultural, and, and uh, you know, other kind of ways that um, do I really think that there's a single production function that explains the relationship between capital and labor and natural resource everywhere on the globe? And it's just a matter of inferring what that underlying structure is by using variation across countries and these things. That's, there's something about that baseline hypothesis, which is not tested. It's presumed in the exercise that has always troubled me a little. Yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. That's I think that's what I, what I've been what I was trying to get is to what extent to what extent is what the economist telling us something about how humans behave in marketplaces versus how humans in certain kinds of countries with certain kinds of economies behave in marketplaces. I guess what I'm asking is, you know, if I have some, some account that seems to be work pretty well, it's going to predict, it's going to help me predict how someone's going to behave, uh, uh, let's say in terms of, uh, buying and selling. Um, am I going to find that that works when I, when I apply it to uh, an aboriginal tribe living in the middle of the forest who has no, no contact with modern markets and modern, in other words, is what I've discovered a truth about human economic behavior or is it a truth about human economic behavior in certain kinds of places with certain kinds of systems? Yeah, I wish I had uh, said what you just <laughs> said. It would have been a more effective reply, I think that that's exactly right, that the answer is no, it's not about human behavior, generally speaking. I mean, there's a lot of evidence on this now from the economic anthropologists, people who are, you know, they have these like, um, uh, these games that the subjects play at computers in a laboratory, where we're dividing a dollar, and I get to decide what the division is, and you get to accept it or reject it. So I take 60 cents and I give you 40 and you can say no and get nothing or you can say yes and get the 40. Economic theory predicts that the first mover in such a circumstance will take basically the whole dollar because the second mover, a penny is better than nothing. Right. Except in the laboratory, we find that even in the United States or in Germany or in the United Kingdom, uh, people don't take the whole dollar because the uh, guy who's left with one cent and the other one getting 99 feels that he's been so treated so unfairly that he prefers to take nothing with dignity than to taking the one cent right. complete. So the guy who's dividing, knowing that the guy on the other side might turn down one cent to 99, only takes 70 cents or 65 or whatever. And you get past it. Now, my point in this example is to say when this same very, very simple exercise is repeated amongst uh, native uh, indigenous population in the Andes, uh, amongst uh, people who are uh, living in uh, uh, South Africa, amongst people in village India. I mean, because it's easy to do. All you need is a set of computers and a yeah. simple uh, apparatus. You get very, very different ah. responses to the same set of conditions. That's fine. That's, that's what you think. And, and just try to account for this in terms of evolved norms of sharing and reciprocity and all like that. I'm not an expert. I don't want to try to speak beyond my knowledge. But I'm just saying there's no reason to think that there's a uniform uh, human behavioral response to that particular uh, uh, situation of, of reciprocity and sharing. And if not there, then there's every good reason to think that, you know, altruistic behavior, yeah. uh, the extent to which, you know, a village of people are prepared to close ranks around one of their members if they become needy and whatnot, the extent to which people are willing to forgive transgressions and allow someone to come back in good standing in their and all that, why that should be thought to be a universal, um, you know, aspect of human behavior when we know culture. So, you know, culture, culture penetrates so deeply. 
that that you can't make these generalizations can't be about people in general. They have to be about relatively, and 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 is what mostly what economists in in modern industrial countries like us is mostly what they're doing is trying to understand and predict behavior of people in countries like ours. Is that really what what they're about? Sure. You know, sometimes I'm online and I'm curious about something. Might be politics, might be culture, might be whatever it is. And I want to search and I don't want anybody to know what I'm searching for. I don't want them looking over my shoulder. I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode? Let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use, or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why, even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter who your internet service provider is. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize I have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background and is so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you to not be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by Business Insider. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash Glenn, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Glenn. Expressvpn.com slash Glenn to learn more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so is it an exaggeration that, I mean, y- you hear um, that economists have a sort of a, a working picture of human nature that they presume, and that is of the sort of the re- rational utility maximizer. Yeah. Is, this not tr- is this not true? Do they not presume that? Or is it true uh, that they do presume that? Well, we have presumed this in the history of economics uh, for a couple of hundred years, and the received uh, body of theory rests upon that basic assumption. I mean, utility maximization is a formal way of representing the idea that people can evaluate the alternatives in front of them and are inclined, subject to their constraints, to choose that alternative which is best according to their criterion of evaluation. Okay, Not that there has to be such a thing as utility, as a real... Yes, I understand. That's an artifact. That's a just a device for representing this idea that people strive to do the best for themselves uh, given the constraints that they face. 
But that very simple idea, which was kind of a workhorse axiom about human behavior uh, in the first uh, couple of centuries since Adam Smith, has, I think, uh, of late fallen under a lot of critical <coughs> examination. <coughs> and theorists have, begin, have begun to try to elaborate models of choice, which in one way or another relax that kind of assumption. So uh, the psychological investigations, which have found various biases, uh, you know, loss aversion, I, I could take a risk that would be pay, that would seem to pay out on the average, but I don't take it because I overly uh, fear the downside of the risk as compared to, you know, something like that, or, um, uh, you know, self-justifying behavior. You know, I did something at time T minus one, so I'd act at time T in order retrospectively to make sense of what I did at time T minus one, even though we're always taught in graduate school that bygones are bygones, sunk costs are sunk, you can't get them back. Forward-going behavior is what's being maximized, but people don't actually act like that all the time, and that could be important. Um, and um, other relaxations of the basic utility maximizing. So choosing from a menu. Suppose I think about choice. Instead of all the options are in front of me, I evaluate them and pick the best one. The options are themselves clustered into, you know, I get menu A or menu B or menu C. I go to the restaurant. Menu A has uh, a vanilla uh, pudding on it. Uh, but I'm overweight. I don't want to eat the vanilla pudding. Uh, should be that more choices are always better because I can always say no to the choice that I don't want. But it might be that I want to bind myself in advance by rejecting all menus with vanilla pudding on them because I know once I'm placed in that situation, right? Multiple selves. The guy today who doesn't want to be fat says no vanilla pudding on the menu. But the guy after dinner who's just eaten the steak thinks it would be perfectly topped off with vanilla pudding. <laughs> This guy today has got to protect himself against this guy tomorrow. It's, you know, so on. That's a great example. <laughs> you know, so in, in any case, examining the foundations of choice in a more systematic way that takes seriously the idea that people may not always do, quote, what's best for them, or that right. it's not possible to unambiguously say what they, what they prefer, or that what they prefer depends on the context within which the question has been raised about what do they prefer, this kind of thing. Is getting a lot more attention in economics. So, so in terms of the, so the last century, the twentieth century, I think it would be fair to describe as one in which, for more than half of it, um, the dominant position in psychology was that human beings are actually not rational actors for the most part. So, both the behaviorist school would tell you this. And the psychoanalytic school would also agree on this point to the extent to which the surface behavior is, is controlled greatly by the unconscious. Um, did those sort of huge movements in psychology have any effect on the way economists were inclined? To th did, did, did this play any role in their in lesser inclination to treat human nature as essentially that of rational uh, utility maximization? Uh. Were there behaviorist econom economists, so to speak, or, or psychoanalytical sort of economists who were trying to bring those insights to bear to understand human behavior in the market, our behavior in the markets? Well, yes, behavioral economics and economists whose investigations take very seriously the non-rational aspect of human behavior uh, has emerged as a subfield in economics in the last 20 years. And there are, you know, people... 
I'm thinking of this book, uh, Scarcity, uh, by Sindil uh, Mullenathan and um, Shafir Eldar. Shafir Eldar is a psychologist at Princeton, and Mullenathan uh, is an economist at Harvard. And the book is about the behavior of individuals who are subject to extreme uh, stress because of the lack of something that they really need. Okay, it could be money, it could be food, uh, it could be time. They, they have a general theory of scarcity. I just give this as one example. I'm trying to exemplify the emergence of a field called behavioral economics in which people take seriously non-rational uh, action by uh, the subjects of their study and then try to draw out implications of it. Um, and this would be one example of that, but there, there's a lot of that kind of work uh, that's going on. But it hasn't penetrated through to the core of some of the big questions in economics. Why do you think that is? I think it's because it's still early and because, and this is just me, I'm you know not a historian of science, but my sense is that you have to assimilate these new ideas, right? A kind of Thomas Kuhn story here. Yeah. We've got a paradigm. Your talk doesn't fit anywhere within our constellation of concept and idea. It, we have to somehow rethink what we're doing in order to make room for this thing. So it's it's out there. It's percolating. It's not without interest. It's attracting attention and people are investigating, but it hasn't really transformed uh, and maybe shouldn't. I mean, I, I, I don't you know, I don't know how to talk about this in the abstract. Hasn't hasn't really had that kind of reshaping the discipline effect that one might one might hope. I want to just say one more thing. I don't want to overstress how critical this uh, assumption that people are right. They don't need to be completely, absolutely, fully in every respect, rational in everything they do. Uh, all I need, for example, to get my arbitrage argument going is that water flows downhill, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. And, and then I can predict that it's going to settle in the low places. This is the kind of idea. You want to deny, you want to deny that it's that ambitious of an assumption. I mean, I think a lot of people yeah. maybe may make a mistake and overstate what the assumption is um, um, and maybe attribute to it a bit more philosophical purity than the economist intends to attribute to it. That's exactly what I want to say. And I think people want to be, you know, they don't like economics because the economist is the bearer of bad news. Nothing is free. There's no free lunch. You know, right. I'm sorry, but if you do this, there are going to be consequences. And so since this assumption is obviously false, right? I mean, it's introspection. It's obviously false that people are fully rational beings or whatever. whatever. Yes. That's... By saying you guys believe something that's obviously false, therefore I don't have to listen to it. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so... I have one last question I wanted to ask you. Um, um, I wanted to make sure we got to, and, and I don't yeah. want, since we're going to the hour, and I know, I know you're a busy man. Um, um, I'm interested in your opinion on the recent. There's been a recent brouhaha over the fact that it turns out that in a very large number of the uh, experiments in psychology cannot be replicated. Yeah. And this has caused quite a stir and has caused people, at least in the pub public popular conversation, to start wondering aloud about just how good, you know, how, how good of a science psychology is and how good the theories are. And I, I guess I'd I'm interested in your opinion on this issue as it applies to psychology, just because it's been so much so discussed in the last few weeks since the since this study came out. But I'm also was going to ask you whether there are similar problems in economics, whether economic theory uh, experiments also resist uh, rep replication. So I don't know the answer to the second question, uh, just as a matter of fact. 
to what extent have people tried and failed to replicate the results that are found in, and as I said, the experiments in economics are to some degree artificial. You put people in a laboratory. Now, in experimental economics, which is a field, experimental economics, which consists of studies in which people try to find out by varying certain kinds of conditions. I'll give one example. Um, this is about, uh, would I be more willing to support the provision of public goods, which cost me something, which, but which benefit everybody, right? You know, you've got this classic problem, the classic public goods problem, which is if I make an investment that the benefits are, you know, broadly available to everybody, Generally, I'm going to make a socially too small investment in that activity because I don't internalize the benefits that other people are getting. Right. So, so I'll underinvest. So one argument for the state for, you know, coercive, centralized public action taxes in order to pay for the national defense which no one would be willing to pay for on their own, right. is that we need these public goods, but our incentives are all screwed up about providing them in an uh, autonomous way. So we need to be, in effect, coerced into providing them for our own benefit. Are people more willing to go along with that coercion if they have a say in how the monies are being spent than if they don't? So we can create a laboratory environment. I'm just giving an extended example in which we have a kind of goods game where people get to decide how much they want to contribute and the benefits are available to everybody. And there's a precondition where either they get to discuss and vote on the protocol or they don't get to vote on it. And then by comparing how people provide for the public good in the condition in which they have a say and which they don't have a say, people want to draw a conclusion about the extent to which democracy, participatory democracy, promotes uh, uh, citizenship and public spiritedness. Uh, now, that's a large, large step from a laboratory experiment. Now, so what I'm trying to say is it may be that in the journal, when you send the paper in, uh, the editor uh, uh, says uh, uh, that uh, we'll publish this paper. And then someone sees it and they say, aha, I want to replicate this experiment. Of course, the problem is going to be it was the American Economic Review where the original paper is published. But the replication isn't fit for the American Economic Review. It's going to be in a second tier journal run by somebody at a second tier you know, not at Princeton or Stanford or MIT, but, you know, whatever. And so there's really very little incentive for the most talented people in the profession to engage in that kind of activity. But I, I actually don't know the answer to the question, is there a replication crisis in economics comparable to that that has been exposed in psychology? Um, I, I, I'm generally, I'm not an empiricist, okay? I, I just want to tell you, I don't do experiments. I'm not a I'm a theoretician. Uh, so, you know, nobody, you can replicate my theorems just by proving, you know, right. it's correct. <laughs> but but um, I, I generally think that the major journals now are requiring people who do large scale empirical investigations to make their data publicly available. OK, so that another investigator, it's probably going to be a graduate student. It's probably going to come up in some advanced graduate class where the instructor says, go get that data set and see if you can't replicate this guy's findings. So then you have to get down in the bowels of the data. You have to deal with all the mechanics about how you organize and code it. And then you have to do the statistical analysis to see whether the outcomes come out. Now, that kind of thing is, is, is being done quite a bit in economics. And famously, uh, Stephen Levitt has, for example, the uh, well-known economist, author of Freakonomics, a, a first-rate economist, a winner of the John Bates Clark Medal in Economics. Uh, uh, some years ago, 
um, which honors the best economists under the age of 40 every year and so on. So this is Stephen Levitt, University of Chicago. He's a, he's a major player. But he's had to uh, call back a couple of results in some of his papers where a graduate student at Berkeley has gotten the data and gone through and gone through and found out, aha, he made a mistake in coding some variable with a one instead of a zero. And when you do it the right way, his result uh, collapses at the first stage of his two-stage least squares and that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. And uh, I had to say, oops, you know, so that kind of thing is happening with empirical investigations where the data can be made publicly available. Since experimental investigation isn't as critical in economics, I don't know that the replication of experiment question has come up. But these lab experiments that the experimental economists are doing with the little programs at the computer screens are very easy to replicate. Anybody can get the protocol and get a, you know, 20 or 40 yeah. undergraduates in a room and, and see if the things come out the same. And do we know whether in that small arena of economics that is experimental, do we know how successful replication has been or has it been sort of a fiasco like in psychology? No, my impression is success is pretty successful. My impression, I stand to be corrected here. If anybody in the audience knows better than I do about this is that, um, we don't really hear about these results unless they get replicated. I mean, they don't become canonical. Mm, I see. They don't gain the status of having a purchase on the profession's attention. And because the replication of these laboratory experiments is pretty easy to do. I see. And so do you have any, fe do you have any feelings about what happened in psychology? I guess, I guess what I'm wondering is whether, in general, we would expect that social science would have a poorer rate of replicability than physical science, that we would expect that as a matter of course, even if only because it's much more difficult to simulate the initial the original conditions in a, when the, when the, when the, the palette one is working on as a social palette, as opposed to just, you know, space or, or, or a, or a few substances or, um, um, you know, yeah. should, should we, ex in other words, are we being a bit unfair? Is this, is this jumping on psychology a bit unfair? Because we should expect that, of course, social science experiments are going to be less rep replicatable than physical science experiments. They're going to have a poorer rate of replicability. I think that's right for the reasons that you just stated, that there is uh, every reason to, it's going to be harder to exactly recreate the conditions of the initial investigation. And so... Uh, and that's one reason why I say with respect to this laboratory experimentation that the experimental economists do, where it's relatively easy to replicate the computer program that everybody sat and looked at. Uh, but it might be pretty hard in some psychological experiments, and I'm not an expert in this field, to, to get that replication just right. Also, to the extent that there's noise, I mean, I find the result, but there's always variance, right? There's always an error. There's, a, you know... Results can happen by chance, you know, uh, sometimes. I mean, I can, you know, if I flip a coin long enough, I'm going to get 10 straight heads. That doesn't mean that, you know, yeah. the coin is weighted in favor of heads. Uh, kind of thing like that. There's a chance that uh, the original finding was not a faithful replication of the underlying structure, but just a noisy observation of that structure. Hence, when I repeat the experiment, if there's a lot of noise in the uh, 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 inferential process, I might not, I might not get the same result just because the first result was what it was by chance and not by yeah. fidelity to the true structure. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, I think we do, 
we are expecting a bit too much from the social sciences. I, I think I think that because we don't think enough about and talk enough about the difference between what the social sciences do and what the physical sciences do, we expect of the social sciences a similar kind of result that we expect from the physical, um, which is unfair. But in it, but also I would say we are in a sense through our policy, um, our policies, we are trusting the social sciences maybe a little bit too much, don't you think? I mean. I mean, we We're are patient enough. It seems yeah, to me. Andy. Yeah, yeah. In other words, a, a, a single finding is not is not uh, a conclusion, you know. And so we keep your powder dry. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So there's that study. But wait a minute, it hasn't been replicated, or it's not. You know, let's let's wait. Let's see if we do it in a different population. If we do it on the other side of the Atlantic or right. the equator. Let's see. You know, it might take five years, not five months, before we have a sense of what the answer is here. Interesting, provocative, but let's let's keep our powder dry. Yeah. But of course, the public communications mechanisms are not friendly to patients, and and I guess policymakers are very yes. are very are pushing very hard um, to get so called answers so that they can go ahead and fix problems for which there's tremendous political pressure being put upon them to fix. Um, but I sometimes fear or worry that. We're employing all sorts of remedies based on science that we're treating as if this was like, you know, chemistry, but we really don't know very well at all what's the cause of some of these phenomena, especially some so what's of What's an example? What's an example of the, the fear that you have there? Well, you know, uh, some of the remedies that we bring to bear, for example, for all sorts of uh, negative social behavior. Um, um, you know, theories of, 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 you know, how we deal with kids who are unruly in the classroom, how we do, you know, I am disturbed by the fact that so many of my undergraduates, uh, have been medicated for much of their, uh, for much of their teen years. Um, people who just looking at them, I would think would never have been medicated, uh, or, or even occurred to people to medicate them, uh, when I was a kid in school, um, you know, yeah. back in the seventies or whatever, um, it almost seems to me like, like, you know, we're theories of punishment, you know, the area that you're interested in, um, yeah. you know, locking people up for long periods of time. I mean, do we have any reason to think that this, uh, that this actually solves problems? And I think we, we have many reasons to think that we don't when we look at other countries that don't incarcerate the way we do, as right. you know better than I do. So I guess I think that we're bringing a lot of social science to bear on some very important social problems that we have. Um, but p placing too much confidence in it and, and, and engaging in remedies, which really have tremendous consequence. I mean, you, you medicate whole generations of young people. I don't think you know what kind of people you're going to wind up with when you're done with it, you know? Um, so, and I wonder whether part of this is because we simply don't appreciate the extent to which the social sciences simply don't provide us with the kind of knowledge that physical sciences do and that we have to be a lot more careful with what we do with the results. Yeah. So that's my, that's my feeling about it, at least. <laughs> um, all right, Glenn. Well, I really appreciate this. Uh, it was very that's interesting. Fun. And um, I, look I look forward to watching you on The Glenn Show some more on uh, Vlogging Hits TV. And I look forward to seeing John McWhorter come back. That's my favorite pairing. Yeah, you know, everybody says that. And uh, John, John plays hard to get sometimes. But John, if you can hear me, I'm looking for you, man. Come Thanks. back, right? We, we need to talk about all these things. Yeah, okay. Daniel, thanks. It was great fun. Enjoy your sabbatical and uh, good luck with that memoir. Uh, thank you very much. Take so we're signing off now then, huh? We're signing off. Three, two, one. I'll see you.